This message by Sam Shin, entitled "The New Heaven and the New Earth, Part One," was recorded at Wellspring Church on July twenty-first, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is Revelations chapter twenty-one, verse one, to chapter twenty-two, verse five. For those of you who are joining us as guests or visitors for today, and you have been perhaps not with us this past summer, we've been doing a series on heaven, and. Uh, in particular, today we will talk about the final state, the new heaven and the new earth. And to understand this, I, I want you to know that when we speak of heaven, in fact, I call this series the series of heaven.、Uh, and so, I'm using that word broadly, but within that broad word, there's also specificity. So, for example, if someone's from San Francisco, you might say, "I'm from San Francisco." Actually, maybe they live in the financial district area, or Sunset, or the Marina, and saying you're from San Francisco is not incorrect, but there is a more specific way of describing where you're from. In the same way, when I speak of heaven, I'm using it broadly to describe the whole place of where we dwell from the time that we die to eternity. But in actuality, as we've shared and talked about and taught, hopefully you understand that heaven—the word heaven itself—describes the intermediate state, the point of death, to the to this point, the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, where heaven and earth, in a sense, join together, and no longer is there a clear, distinctive line, but the two become one. And so this is no longer our intermediate state, but our final state, where we will be eternally, forever and ever. This is the place, not heaven, but the new heaven and the new earth. Randy Alcorn,、uh, author, he he notes that、um, he was talking about C.S. Lewis, and five months before C.S. Lewis died, C.S. Lewis wrote a, to a woman who was very much afraid of her own death because her death was very imminent. And so you have to understand, for Lewis, his own death was imminent five months before he died. And this is what Lewis wrote. He said, "Can you not see death as a friend and deliverer? What is there to be afraid of? Your sins are confessed. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind." The Lord says to you, "Peace, child. Peace. Relax. Let go. I will catch you. Do you trust me so little?" Of course, this may not be the end. Then make it a good rehearsal. And then Lewis signs the letter, "Yours and like you, a tired traveler, near the journey's end." For these last few weeks in heaven, we're on this journey together, and I hope to show you that the journey's end is so wondrous that you will find even the end of your days, but a doorway to the new heaven and the new earth. And through that, we're going to look at first the characteristics of this new heaven and new earth, and then the consummation of our final destination, as we see in Revelation twenty-one to twenty-two. So, first, the characteristics of this new heaven and new earth, and the first characteristic we're going to look at is newness, the actual adjective of new. And in it, we see verses one and five reflect on the newness of this place. You cannot understand, though, the newness of the new heaven and new earth without going back to the old heaven and earth. That's what verse twenty-one one says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And this first heaven and this first earth is but a a shadow of what is to come. It's why C.S. Lewis calls this place Shadowlands. And when we think of this first earth and heaven, it just should bring us back to Genesis. And in fact, in these first few verses of chapter 21 of Revelation, there is a clear parallel as well as a contrast to Genesis. And I'm going to point out some of them to you. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the Bible, it says, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Now go back to Revelation 21, 1, and you see a very similar phrase. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis 1, the spirit hovers over the waters. And here, the sea in Revelation is no more. So we see in Genesis, there's this place, this the waters are flowing. But yet here we see the sea is no more. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates man and woman, makes them in his likeness, in his image. And then in chapter 2, we're told that he brings them together as husband and wife. And you see, if we go to the next slide, um, yeah. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And in, in chapter 21, we see that there is also a bride and a groom coming together. Christ, the groom, the church, his bride. Next, we see in Genesis chapter 3 that there is a, a shame and a fear that comes about because of the hearts of Adam and Eve and all of his descendants moving forward would be a heart of rebellion and rejection of God, the absence of God, the, the, the claim that there is no God ultimately. And as well, we see in chapter 21, a promise, a very contrasting promise. Because in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are driven from the garden. But in chapter 21 of Revelation and chapter 22, we're told that they will never be driven away, that there are no more tears, no sorrows, no pain anymore. We're told in Genesis chapter 3, after sin, after their rejection of God, God places on them a curse. And there is a curse to the serpent, the beasts of the field. There's a curse to the very earth. And the, the fact of the matter is, and we'll talk a lot about this next week in Romans chapter 8, we find that that curse has dramatic impact, not just on the environment, and on the physical nature of the earth, but as well the relational nature of the earth. The relationships that we have with one another all have bear the curse. But look at Revelation 22, 3. We are told no longer will there be anything accursed. So clearly what John saw in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, is the answer to all that had gone wrong at the beginning of time. So at the end of time, it's the redoing, the renewing, the reviving, the restoration of all that God intended to be. In Genesis 1, God creates the sun, moon, and stars. In Revelation 21, 23, we're told that there's no need for the sun and moon and stars. I do think there will still be stars. 
But again, I think I tried to give this illustration of shining the flashlight into the sun. It, there might be a light, but the light is so bright of what is the object of that light that it's sort of negated in that truth, in that reality. And so for the sun and the moon and the stars, they might shine, but the shining glory of God is so brilliant that you won't even be able to see the sun and the moon and the stars. These similarities to Eden in the first paradise, the old earth, make it clear that, first of all, we're not talking about a destruction of the first earth. And many times, verse 1 of chapter 21 of Revelation is often seen that way. And so sometimes we even might use the phrase, well, we don't have to worry because everything's going to be burned up anyway. Have you ever heard that? It's really based on the idea that somehow there's going to be a and this old earth, everything's going to be demolished, the earth is going to completely be destroyed, and God's going to create a new earth, brand new, and from that, that's where we're going to be. But I don't think that actually is the case. When you look at both, you see that the earth passing away is essentially saying that the old order of all the rebellion and the rejection and the sin and the corruption, all of that goes away, just like we learned last week with the body that the human body dies and the resurrected body is made anew. Our resurrected and glorified body will still be our body, but it will be a perfected, made whole body. And so even though it will look very different, it will also be just like us. So there will be a familiarity and a newness to it all. That's the first idea and characteristic of this new heaven and new earth. The second is it will be a place of complete safety. And I think we see this mostly in verse 1. It has this interesting phrase, and the sea was no more. And that makes us wonder, does that mean there is going to be no more ocean? No more big, large body of water? And for some of us, perhaps, who are afraid of water or swimming in deep waters, you think, praise God, I don't have to worry about that anymore. But for some of you, you've actually gone to the ocean and you love snorkeling and you love seeing tropical fish and dolphins. And, and so when you think about the fact that the sea is no more, that just is sort of discouraging. And you think, I don't know if I would like that as a, a to be in eternity with no more oceans and no more vast seas. Whenever we go to the English camp to serve in Barcelona, the students get a chance to go to the Mediterranean Sea and sort of go watch them go vast, you know, way out. And it's an incredibly beautiful water. It's where the Israelites are from. And, you know, just a lot of the Mediterranean peoples are there. Or if you go to Hawaii and who doesn't love the ocean and the smells of the ocean and the sounds and the waves and the beautiful sunrise and sunset over the horizon and the beautiful fish and the sea creatures. So what does this mean? We need to go back again to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 to understand what John saw in Revelation. And what Genesis records is the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the, over the face of the waters. The waters represent to the Israelites the void and the darkness and the deep 
of creation. It was a place of chaos. It was a place where life was to be formed, but it was a lot of unknowns. And think of it this way. If you've ever seen an artist work and they have a big palette, they have their canvas and they put on the, the palette all the different colors and they're just sort of mixing and matching all the colors and then they start working on the canvas. And if you were to just stop and, you know, if you, if let's say someone's painting a picture of you, a painting of you, and you ask the artist, can I see after say five minutes of work, the artist would probably be like, no, you don't want to look at it. And you say, no, no, I really want to look. And they turn it around and all you see is a mess, a blob. And you think to yourself, I don't know how that's going to look like me. I don't understand it. But give it time, and as the artist is painting away and adding on layers of brush strokes and different colors, and they were to turn it around after maybe two hours of work, suddenly that blob and that chaos looks beautiful. It looks like you. In many ways, this is what God is doing when he creates. He creates out of the nothingness, and then he starts by filling in all the chaos the void, the waters, and then from there comes the beauty. And that's what water is, the seas. It's a place of unknown. It's unsafe. It's so unsafe that John sees in Revelation 13, 1, that the beast rises from the sea. Job chapter 3, verse 8 talks about the Leviathan that is from the sea. We know also that Jesus, when he was on the boat, the sea is raging. And the disciples are afraid because if you've ever been caught in a storm on a sea, it's quite frightening. But of course, Jesus calms that sea. The problem with the sea today is that this is a place of beauty, but it is also a place of danger. You probably know, or maybe you know very personally of people who have been lost at sea. I know and heard of people who have just even stood on the seashore even in the Bay Area, even at Point Reyes or different parts where they'll be standing on the seashore. And if you're not looking carefully, a rogue wave will come in and literally sweep them, a person out to sea. It's happened many times. I know of two instances where people have been lost at sea just simply standing out fishing or standing near the seashore. So be mindful of when you're going up there. I also know one person who was in Hawaii. They were taking a picture. They were standing with the ocean in the back and they were taking a picture of their children. And as they did so, a rogue wave came in and knocked them down. And this person is now paralyzed for the rest of his life. This is a true story. I know a person this happened to. This is what we think of, maybe not all the time, but this is what can happen in the sea. And if you've been on a cruise or seen, especially if you're on a cruise in a big boat and you think, wow, this is a really big boat, especially when you're looking at it at the dock and it's just this huge passenger liner and you think, tremendous. But as it goes out to sea, into the ocean, and if you were to somehow be able to take see a satellite image of that boat to the ocean, it would be but a speck of sand on a beach. And that's what it would look like. That's why the boat... The ocean, all of this is beautiful until it is unsafe. But what John sees in the new heaven and the new earth is that the sea is no more. A place where harm can come. 
It means that perhaps not just that there's no risk of danger, but maybe there's no salt in the sea. Maybe. I don't know. If you've ever been to Crater Lake and gone swimming at Crater Lake, one of the most wonderful things about that lake in Oregon is that it is pure water, like very clean. And so you can go to that lake, swim and open your mouth and drink water at the same time. I know that sounds strange, but you can do that there. Imagine a whole ocean where you could go swimming, not fear drowning, and drink as much water as you want. And it is the most pristine, the best tasting, most thirst quenching water you could ever drink. I do think when we imagine this, it's going to just so far be far more astounding than we could ever imagine, indescribably so. Maybe it might mean we don't even need scuba gear. Hold your breath. You go under the water. You look at the sea creatures. You drink your water. You could spend your whole time. Forget about discovering the world above. What about discovering the world below? And we know scientists really show this, biologists, marine biologists, that we know very little about the ocean, far less than we know about any part of the earth as a whole. Imagine that place where you can explore. We will, you could understand why it will take, we have an eternity of life and exploration and discovery and thrills and delights and joys to see the beauty of that. That's what I see in this text, that it's not just about seas. The principle is that this new earth is going to be a place where there's no fear of ever any loss or hurt or disease, no flesh-eating bacteria, praise God, no Ebola, you know, no catching a cold on vacation or having a fever so you can't do anything you have to lay in bed when you're on vacation. That's not what the new heaven and new earth is going to be like. So this place is going to be a place where we can discover mountaintops. We'll all be climbing Everest. We'll all be able to go into the deepest of waters and explore and see the most astounding of creatures. And we're going to be able to go to the skies and the cliffs. And if you're like me who is scared of heights. I do not like looking over a big cliff, but we'll be able to go to the edges of cliffs. And who knows? I don't know whether that means walking on even in the sky or whatever it might be, but there is going to be freedom from, from fear. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what the new earth and new heavens is going to be like. And so that's why we just settle and we can't compare what we have today for what is to come. Next is that John describes this place as a city in verses two. And then most of this chapter verses nine through 27, it's the new Jerusalem and Jerusalem is more than just a name. It is the dwelling place of God. It's where God's presence is full and unimpeded. And whether you are a city person or not, and I know some of us might say, well, you know, if heaven, if this new earth is a big city, I just don't like cities. They're crowded. I was in San Francisco yesterday driving around. 
in Golden Gate Park and at Pier 39. It was miserable. You know, for most of us who are, for those of you who are visiting, yeah, that's not really the best part of San, you might think it's a really cool part of San Francisco. But for those of us who live here, we're going, oh, it was crowded, parking was crazy, um, it was difficult. I went to Boudin. It took so much time to get a clam chowder bowl. You know, so when I think of the new heaven and new earth, and I think of New Jerusalem, a city, I don't think it's going to be like San Francisco. I hope not. And I know some of us might think, I love San Francisco. I love New York. Those are beautiful cities to a certain extent, but they have some real problems. But one thing we know about a city is that it has tall buildings, many people, great food, financial centers, museums, city parks. Those are really some of the wonderful things about being in a city, having such close access to them all and to be able to discover just by simply walking, which sadly, us suburbanites, we don't get a chance to do too often. You should try walking actually more and more. I know it's boring. It's dull to walk in the suburbs. The city has that and it's wonderful, but it also has, you can't leave anything in your car at all or else suddenly a big spark plug will come through the window and be pulled out and you'll get whatever little thing in your car stolen. And then more than anything, you'll just be frustrated that someone broke your window. There's drug paraphernalia on the floor. You smell pot everywhere. There's homelessness, crime. And so some, when they think of the city, they say, oh, great, a city. And some say, oh, great, a city. But this city that we will be living in and be a part of will be spectacular. What are some of the characteristics of this city? First, it has gates and walls. And the first question that should come to your mind when you hear this is, why in the world would a city where it's completely safe have gates and walls? I, mean, just, I thought gates and walls were meant to keep people out. We're told in Revelation 21, 25, and its gates will never be shut by day. So one thing we know is that the intent of these gates and walls are not meant to keep people out because the gates will never be shut. Instead, we're told and we see throughout, and as Rob was reading, I hope you saw the walls are an art piece. They're, they have jewels. Jasper is one of them. And if you've ever seen Jasper, it is, it is just the most brilliant red. And it, it's like all these jewels and all the, this brilliance covers the walls. That is to say that this city will have as an aspect of it, art and music. The, the talents of people. You're, we're not going to go to a place where, and I know this is the problem with most of us when we think of what is heaven going to be like? Am I just going to be sitting there and singing in a choir all day for 24 hours and just singing in a choir? Now, singing in a choir might not be so bad, but you don't want to do it for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's not what it is. Instead, all of our gifts and talents, and all that we love to do and delight in, but maybe 
you know, here, if you've ever tried to play an instrument, or maybe you're tone deaf, can you imagine a place where you can actually continuously grow in your musical abilities and it will increase in its delight, in its, in your joy in this process? The walls have that purpose. It's to show the beauty of this place. It's a spectacle, an art piece, and it's a reminder. It's a reminder also of what walls are meant to do, which is to keep you out. The Berlin Wall was one such wall that kept people out from freedom. So people who lived in East Berlin were unable to go to West Berlin during the communist era of East Germany. And the Stasi would come and do all they could to shoot people down literally. And so if you were to go to Germany today and go to some of the museums, they have a portion of that wall. Why, why do they do that? Because that portion of that Berlin wall covered with graffiti is a reminder to those who live now in a unified Germany of what totalitarianism was like living in a communist state, what it meant to be divided. And I believe that this wall, as much as it's meant to be a picture of the beauty and extravagant beauty of God and the delight that we will have in exploring our gifts and talents, most of all, it's meant to be a reminder of what we were kept from because of our own self-centeredness and our own arrogance. Hebrews 13.12, as we spoke of when, we're, when I was talking about hell, describes the wall this way. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus's work on the cross, his bloodshed allows us to enter into new, this new Jerusalem freely. There's no TSA, heavenly TSA at the gate. And for all the caricatures of St. Peter at the gate and someone saying, what brings you to this place? That just isn't true because we see, according to this text, the wall, the gates are open. The wall is there, but the gate is open because you have been covered with the blood of Christ. That is your passport. And that passport can never be lost, forged, or stolen. It is with you forever and ever. So when you trust in Jesus Christ and place your hope in him and decide to follow him and say, I will... You know, as the song goes, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. When that's your decision and heart's passion, you have a passport to this new heaven and new earth forever and ever. Paul describes it this way, Ephesians 3.14. He has broken down in, um, he has broken down in his flesh, that is his body broken on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility. So, Christ has broken the wall figuratively. And at least in the new Jerusalem, what he's done is he's opened the gates wide for you. Nothing will ever keep you out. Another aspect of the city is that it is enormous. We probably can't really capture how big this city is because it's using biblical measurements, stadia. But, 12,000 stadia, according to verse 16, is equivalent to about 1,400 miles in length, in length. And in accordance with this, it's four square. So it's a cube. It's a, it's not just a square, but it's 
for, uh, it's 1,400 miles long, wide, and high. Now, you might think, 1,400 miles high? That's really big. 1,400 miles, to give you an idea, is basically almost, it's about the distance between Chicago to San Francisco. So that's not one country, but one city. And it's that high, meaning there could be buildings that high. Now try going into one of those elevators. <laughs> you will get, but this place is, is just unimaginable. Whatever we see, and if you go to some of the world's most, um, just astounding, enormous cities with huge buildings, the, the team in uh, Zimbabwe, they're making a stop in Dubai, so they'll be stopping at the Burj Khalifa, which is one of the tall, I don't think it's, it might either be still the tallest, but I know there's other buildings being built taller. That's a very tall building. If you go to Dubai or Hong Kong or New York and you see some of the skyscrapers, they're gigantic. But comparatively, they will pale in comparison to what the New Jerusalem's buildings will be. The thing about this city, as it will just far outpace whatever beautiful city we think of, San Francisco, Vancouver, Sydney, Tokyo, London, Barcelona, Dubai, and the art and the music and the food that is going to be there for all of us to discover, foods that we have even yet to put our taste buds on, music that will put to shame even some of the grand masters of music from Mozart to Miles Davis. I mean, it will be just dramatic, the type of music we will hear. And then in this place, no harms, no exploitation, no sorrows, no injustice, no crime, no sensuality. Instead, all of the things that had put the city to be a place of corruption forever wiped away. It's not the city that is bad. It is our hearts that turns the city into a corruption. And this has gone on since the first city that was founded. You know, Cain founded the first city in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. And what he decided to do, this is Cain who killed his brother, Abel. And after that, because, and he killed his brother basically because he wanted to do things his own way. And that's how it's always been since. And he names his son, Enoch, and he names that first city after Enoch. Sort of a way of saying, I'm building this on myself. By my power, my might. And that has this progression that moves throughout every city. It's always about the Babel idea, the Tower of Babel idea of lifting and exalting the self above God. The New Jerusalem is the place where there's no other ruler ex except for God, which is really the, the third characteristic of the, this particular city. John tells us in Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Because God is reigning, he rules in the best possible form of government. And by the way, democracy is not the best possible form of government, nor is a republic. The best form of government 
is a theocracy. It's where God rules. We're not going to have voting in the new earth. I'm sorry to say, politics gone forever. Maybe that's really good news. Actually, I'm not sorry to say. Everyone's going to say, praise God. You know, no elections, no political parties, no lobbying groups. God rules. And because God rules perfectly and because people will forever want to follow him and trust him, it's in this place then that because God rules perfectly, we're told in Revelation 21, 27 that no one does what is detestable or false. That's the only way that a city prospers perfectly is where God reigns perfectly. The people follow him. And because they follow him, no one does what is detestable or false. There is not a single political bone in a person's body. Oh, I look forward to that day when we don't have to read all sorts of things, whichever side of the aisle you are on, to be in a day where that is gone forever. That's good news. Most of all, in this city, we will find Jesus at the center of it all. And you won't be forced to worship him. We sang a song that talks about just falling on our knees. We, John, in Revelation, every time he encounters anyone within this place, he falls on his face because he is just so awestruck with what he sees. And one day when we see the Lord, we too will fall on our face, not because we are forced to, but it will be our instinct to do so. We will shout. We will dance. We will, uh, we will just do all that we can to respond to his beauty and to his majesty. And all of us will be there because, uh, not only because of Jesus, but we want to worship him. And we will perfectly worship him. Again, I don't think this means that we are physically all the time, 24 hours a day, going to be singing a song unto Jesus. But in our hearts, we will be. It's actually the only way we could enjoy everything anyway. It won't be heaven and the new heavens and the new earth unless our hearts are made anew and we delight in him. And the reason why we do not experience this fully here is because we don't perfectly delight in him. We're still consumed with ourselves. But the new heavens and the new earth in this place of consummation, consummation meaning it's done. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. When we go to be with him, when we are resurrected forever and ever, the new earth will never disappoint us. It's what we were created for. And it's what we long for now, whether you realize it or not. Every time there's an emptiness in your heart, a loneliness. And when you find that actually no person in this world can fulfill perfectly that emptiness, that loneliness. And for those of you who perhaps one day think, if I just get a boyfriend or girlfriend, I just get engaged, I get married, if I have children, every stage has its loneliness. And if you're honest with yourself, you see it. And you see it progress, not just in terms of marital status, but also in terms of age. And as you progress in age, you see the, 
the fact that there's a both a joy, a greater delight, but there's also a forlornness, a nostalgia. And every time you experience a goodbye, there's this sense that, why do I feel still so empty? Why is that still there? Because we're not made for this place. Truly, this is not our home. And so, because everything we experience here, we experience as travelers. And no matter how much fun we have here, no matter how much we suffer here, it's not our home. If you have kids, you've probably experienced this. You go to someone's house with your family, and the youngest kids are always having such a great time that they almost forget that they're part of your family. And then you say, all right, it's time to go home. And what happens then? Tantrum time. I don't want to go home. I don't want to. I want to stay. I want to stay. And they scream and yell because they don't want to leave. Because in that moment, whatever game they have or whatever friend they're playing with, it's just too much fun. And home just seems boring. Now, if you were to say to them with sincerity, if you want to stay, you can stay. But now this is your home. This, this is where you can be. You know, and after, and say, okay, bye-bye, and you leave. You know, we always threaten that, right? Parents always threaten that, bye-bye, and they don't, like, the kid is happy. But what if you say, bye-bye, and you really don't come back, ever? So after about an hour or two hours, they're playing, they're having fun, and suddenly they lift up their head and they go, mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy, and it just goes, ah! That choosing of staying and not going home is exactly us. We are so stuck with watching Netflix and saying, I don't want to go home. We are so stuck with work, working hard and making a lot. I got to make a lot of money because I need to buy this house to upgrade this and to make this so much better. And when I do that, finally, everything will be wonderful. Or if I start dating this person, then he's, he's the light of my life and I'm going to be so satisfied with everything. It doesn't work that way. It's not our home. John says in Revelation 22.2, he will provide healing for the nations. Meaning, you will be hurt and tired and worn and disappointed and discouraged and exasperated by everything and anyone eventually if you stay long enough. But it's in this place where you will be healed forever. You will never be disappointed with God, ever. And I know that for many of us, we say, but why does God put me through so much trial here? Why? Well, here's the big question, and we go through it time and time again, but is heaven, is this real? If the answer is the Bible is true, this is real, and it's an eternity, and it's an infinity, then truly if I do suffer, and I'm not saying suffering is a good thing, but this is where an eternal perspective, and I want why we're going through the series, you need to see heaven. That we're only living for seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe decades. 
but you're eternally living infinitely. And if you think to yourself, why am I suffering so much? Why am I, why am I not getting what I want in this world? Why do I have to face this trial? And we raise our fist to God and say, God, how can you be so unkind? How can you not be feeling to me? We're throwing that tantrum. I'd want to stay here. I don't want to go home. I don't want to go home. And how foolish it looks. It is but a child's tantrum. We just have to see that to be true. So either you believe the Bible and you say, is this true? Then you need to decide, I'm going to live differently. How I use my money. How I treat people. How I forgive or decide not to forgive. How I invest my time, my energies. Johnny, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, she wrote a book on heaven and she's one person actually when she writes or speaks, I listen because for a woman who is a quadriplegic, who has a teenager, basically dove into a water, a pool and you know, banged her head and became paralyzed for the rest of her life and wrestled so hard, wanting to kill herself when she was a teenager after that. I think most of us would be tempted to at least think that way. And yet, through her life, there's been just this constant pursuit of God in the midst of difficulty. She knows so much about heaven because it impacts her life today. And I want to quote something that she wrote in response to 2 Corinthians 4, 8, what Paul writes. She says, what could possibly outweigh the pain of permanent paralysis? The coordinates of the new perspective are found in the next verse. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The greater weight of eternal glory is clear. The healing of that old ache, joy, eternal and ecstatic being beautifully robed in righteousness, knowing Christ fully, my king and co-heir, the final destruction of death, disease, and the devil, the vindication of his holy name, the restoration of all things under Christ. These things outweigh thousands of afternoons of sweats and high blood pressure any day. They outweigh a lifetime of not feeling or moving. Mind you, I'm not saying that my paralysis is in light is light in and of itself. It only becomes light in contrast to the far greater weight on the other side of the scale. What I have found amongst Christians is that there are two types of people who follow Christ. One is the person who is struck by hardship and struggle and strife. And their first instinct is always to say, God, why are you punishing me? You're not faithful. You're not good. And we do all that we can to run away or to condemn ourselves, maybe to feel disappointed with God. The other one is to say, whatever they face, they see the bigger picture of heaven. They're able to see that this is truly, not that the pain is any less. It's terrible. There are some real tragedies in this world, and some of us will face them. But when someone is able to say, God, I am in deep sorrow. But when I see you and I see what you've done and I see what I have to look forward to, this is a light sorrow. 
because the eternal glory far outweighs them all. It's not to make light the pain, but it is to have just such a grand perspective that it swamps over that pain and you're able to persevere through it. What we have before us is a place where there's no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrows. And that should unleash a people who decide to live differently, who refuse to yield to their self-centeredness, who have an urgency to bring the gospel to a lost people, both locally and globally, who think differently about the resources that they have because a dollar, a hundred dollars, a million dollars, a billion dollars, that currency is not accepted in the new heaven and the new earth. Not a place where Jasper lines the walls and a big gigantic pearl rests. Think about the clam for that one that had to give that up. <laughs> God is a good God. And I pray that heaven would direct how you live here on earth. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that we have made you too small. And because of that, we are bound by our self-centeredness. It keeps us from joy. It keeps us from knowing you. You have made us for yourself. It's why we are still empty and longing to fill it with something that dulls the pain. Maybe for some of us, when things get hard, we turn to our shelf and look at the brandy or the scotch or the wine. We want to dull the pain. Maybe we're looking at drugs or work or we're looking at our frustrations and anger, we're watching TV all the time. We just want to escape. But one thing for sure is that we will never escape by those means because you've made us for yourself for an eternity. And it's only when we have the biggest picture possible of you can we finally be free. He who the sun sets free is free indeed. And I pray, Lord, that Jesus, in this place, men, women, students will be set free because they see you as you are and they will see you truly as you are face to face. We look forward to that day. We pray all this in Jesus' name.